Aren't you wondering what this is? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't tell you. <laughs> you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Bringing to you the best stories from icons in the bourbon industry, it's Bourbon Pursuit. Now here are your hosts, Ryan and Kenny. Welcome back to another episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast. Again here, my name is Kenny, and as always, I'm joined by my partner here, Ryan. What's up, Kenny? How's it going? Uh, it's going well. You know, we're uh, back down here in downtown again, interviewing uh, our good friends at Angel's Envy. You know, this is the one thing that I really love about uh, coming here is that Angels Envy is really building something new that they're they're bringing to downtown, right? With the whole revitalization of what's going on with Whiskey Row, this is just one another those those big name brands that you always see on the shelves that you'll now be able to actually visit when you come here to Louisville. Yeah, I'm super excited about the whole Whiskey Row uh, experience, just because we live close to downtown and going to Bardstown and uh, Frankfurt and for sales, it's fun and all, but. There's so much to do downtown, good restaurants, good bars. So it, I think it'll be great just to be able to come down here, pop into the distillery, hang out, do a tour, bring friends, get a great meal. Uh, I, I'm really excited for it all. Well, that's great. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. So today we have Wes Henderson. Now, Wes is the 
chief innovation officer, brand ambassador. He's got all these different titles here at Angels Envy. So, uh, first, Wes, thank you for being on the show today. We definitely appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us. Great to be here. Thanks for coming down. Good. So let's go ahead and kind of talk about maybe your background a little bit. You know, not the not the you know the stuff we can read on Wikipedia or Google or anything like that. But I guess talk to us about you know growing up in a bourbon household. You know, with your father Lincoln, who who was the master distiller here. For in case anybody doesn't know, uh, Lincoln passed away in uh, about 2013, and uh, he was the master distiller here. And and you and him helped create the brand. But let's go back a little bit further in time. I guess kind of tell us about. You know, what was it like to either grow up with bourbon and maybe your, your first sip of it? Do you remember anything like that? I think the most remarkable thing I remember about growing up around bourbon, well, there are a bunch of things I remember, but that... It's probably a lot of things we can't remember, too. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Um, the most remarkable thing I, when I really think about Dad's lineage in the industry was I, I really didn't uh, understand or I'm not going to say appreciate what he did, but... You know, back you know thirty years ago, you know the master. Nobody knew who a master distiller was in a company. Right. You know, nobody really cared. Nobody knew. Nobody cared. Uh, I know. I knew my father was um, obviously extremely smart. I knew he was very creative. I knew he had a brilliant scientific mind. I just never really understood the significance of his place in the history of bourbon until I got much older. Now, I, I do have memories growing up. I, I would go to work with my father a lot of Saturdays. He'd go into work Saturdays when I was little. And I would go down to Brown Foreman with my father and, and the research and uh, development lab. Really, at the time, there wasn't much development going on. It was or research. It was just the lab, mm-hmm. you know. Where it, they was, would, it was Woodford is Woodford, and that's... that's well, even be, even before that, I mean, no, I'm talking, this this predates Woodford by a long time. This goes back to the to the late 1960s and early 1970s when uh, really in the, the two flagships for Brown Foreman in the United States anyway were early times in Old Forester. Right. So that was probably your first drink of bourbon was one of those two. You know, I wish I could really go back and remember when I first enjoyed a bourbon. I mean, certainly I, you know, I don't want to talk about things that happened before I was 21, but, <laughs> um, and, and, and I would never, uh, advocate that, but I, I do think I'm sure along the way I've tasted sips of things here and there. Mm-hmm. It was really wasn't until I got to college that I really started, you know, experimenting with different bourbons and whiskeys. And, you know, the crazy thing about it was, you know, I had access to probably some of the best whiskey in the world, and I drank just cheap ass. You know, I think we drank Old Crow when I was in college. That's, you know, uh, I remember Kentucky Tavern was yeah, my Kentucky drink. Kentucky Tavern was our go-to, right. and because it was, it was because it was cheap, and you could you could somewhat drink it without you know throwing it right back up. But those were some of the first uh, you know bourbons or whiskeys that I ever sampled. But you know, real, I have really good childhood memories of going to work with my father. I like to tell the story that, you know, as we grow up, a lot of people have comfort aromas that they think about, and like be it grandma's apple pie or, or whatever. And my comfort aroma is when I walk into a distillery, it's the aroma of fermenting mash. I remember that going back to a very young age, even going to Jack Daniels with my father um, or going up to Canada to Canadian Mist or going to Brown Foreman. So those are the first memories I have of those aromas and, and fermentation and, and uh, the distillation process. But um, you know, I, I became more aware and more aware as I got older what Dad really did, and 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 as Dad took a more significant place in the industry as you know the an inaugural member of the Bourbon Hall of Fame, and when he created Woodford, that's when I finally kind of woke up and said, "Wow, you know, look at all these amazing things." And you know, he's, he wasn't just my geeky dad. You know, he was mm-hmm. a guy that was an amazing uh, historical 
character and with a very significant place in the distilling industry. Well, good. So I guess kind of talk about how that maybe started leading up into Angel's Envy. So I guess give us a little bit of background about what you did in school and, and how that kind of led you to at some point you and your dad uh, kind of merging your minds together and saying, we got this idea. Let's let's run with it. You know, my first jobs were in radio. I started working at, I was a disc jockey at 15 here in, in, in Louisville and worked at several radio stations, several major radio stations here in town. And, and I was always more intrigued, I think, by the entertainment business and marketing business. And It's the bright lights and flashing colors. <laughs> yeah, and the, something the like stuff that. Stuff that's in your face versus, yeah. yeah. That's what they say. It's not always like that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't see a whole lot of uh, DJs driving Porsches around town. So. No, well, you you don't unless you're like one of these, you know, those <laughs> EDM, EDM. EDM guys. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I just found out like last week that a guy I used to DJ with is, a, is an EDM DJ that gets paid like, you know, half a million dollars, you know, to do a show. It's amazing, <laughs> especially when you see these, these, these Vegas shows out there and you're like, yeah, I mean, they're everywhere and they're getting paid so much money for pool parties and all that stuff. But. It's crazy. But, <laughs> but I, I'm glad that, you know, and, and, and that's a younger person's game. I think as I got older, certainly, and, and as I, as I uh, had a family, I gravitated more towards business endeavors and business marketing and sales and marketing and everything like that. Um, I spent a brief time at Brown Foreman, left Brown Foreman. I, I wasn't a big fan of the Fortune 500 company, you know, that existence. What were you doing at Brown? Yeah, what were you doing at Brown I worked Foreman in corporate services, so it really wasn't. It was an interesting job. You know, I, I did the, the corporate banking. I did uh, – I, I, it was really almost a glorified gopher more than anything. Mm-hmm. But I tell you what, working in that position in corporate services, I worked with – you know, uh, you know, I'd spend time in the mailroom, or I'd spend time with the CEO of the company. I mean, it was a—I probably learned more working in that lowly position than, about the distilling industry than anywhere else. You know, because you saw everything, mm-hmm. and you were like deep in the belly of the beast. So right, you got to see. Get to get to go across the horizontal of the of the, of the right, business. And, and because you were so insignificant, really, on the in the pecking order. You know, <laughs> you were just like a fly on the wall anyway. You know, the people pretended like you weren't there. So because of that, you got to learn a lot of a lot of stuff. So um, I left Brown Foreman and uh, got into several entrepreneurial ventures, which I've built over the years and had a lot of fun doing that. And that really kind of served as a, as a foundation for the experience that I took towards Angel's Envy. And as Dad was getting nearing re- or nearing retirement from Brown Foreman, that's when we really started thinking about doing a project together. I have six children, and I've always, you know, thought about leaving. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot of college money, right there. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah, yeah. It, it's. My my eleven uh, year old asked me a couple of weeks ago. He said, "Dad, if you didn't have all of us, would you be rich?" And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> like hell yeah. yeah, I got yeah, I got so. I got this boat named Eight Hours of Sleep back here, right? <laughs> Poor kid, will be stuck in therapy now for a long time after after I told him that. But it as Dad was nearing retirement, we wanted to do a project together, and we felt like that this might be a great way to do it. And frankly, I don't think not a, not I don't think Dad really had no idea where this thing was going to go. I really believe that he just said, yeah, I'll do it just because that's what you do when you're a dad and your son asks you to come and do something, not knowing where we would be now. And and dad got to see the company rise very rapidly. You know, he passed away in uh, 
2013, towards the end of 2013. So the brand was already making significant progress at that time. And, and a lot of people say it's one of the fastest. It's a phenomenon that even industry veterans say they've never seen before. And that's because of the rapid growth. That's because of the pedigree of the brand. That's because of the, the just the, the handcrafted nature and the innovation that we that we bring to the table. I would also think it, it might even extend to your location as well, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, you know small batch micro distilleries that are they're kind of doing the same exact thing. But you know, when you think of you hear things like uh, Utah and Texas and Colorado, a lot of the times it doesn't scream you know Kentucky bourbon to you. Well, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't scream even scream bourbon. You know, I mean, it. it um, and I know most of the folks in all the states you mentioned. I know the the craft guys and and all those places. I, I mean, certainly Kentucky has a lot to do with it. I think timing has as has as much or more to do with it than anything. Mm-hmm. There's a perfect time for everything to happen, and all these things have come together. But I also think we've really done it better than anybody else. I, I really believe that. You know, we, we've got a ton of experience behind us, and we've got wonderful marketing. We've got wonderful uh, wonderful packaging. That's important. I, I agree. You know, um, and 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 what's inside those bottles is is something that that is very special. And with when you put all those things together, you know, I tell people you can have you can when you're when you're building something that that's very successful. You know, if you let's say that, that there's five elements you need to be extremely successful, you know, you can have three elements, maybe four, and have something that works and works well. But very rarely do all of those elements come together. You know, you get those all five, and then you hit one out of the ballpark. Mm-hmm. And and that's really kind of what's happened with us at the beginning. Now, now, you know, look, we still got a long way to go. We can still screw something up. But as of right now, we've been very blessed uh, in how things have how things have happened. Now, who, when you all first started this company, were were you uh, going towards like originally? Were you thinking uh, port finishes or different finishes? Was that an original thought, or did that just kind of come about? It, it I'm not going to say it was a thought right out of the box, but it came pretty quickly. You know, I, what what did come out right away was I told Dad, "Look, if we're going to do this, I want to do something that that's different." Number one. Number two, let's take a look at some of these things you might have experimented with at Brown Foreman that never saw the light of day for one reason or another. You know, and, and, and there's a lot of reasons why that stuff never saw the light of day. I think number one, I think Brown Foreman's a very conservative company, which is great. Great if you're a shareholder. It's yeah. not so great if you, you looking, can't take risk. Right. If, it's not so much fun if you're looking for innovation. Um, uh, you know, once again, f- phenomenal company. I um, mean, it might not have been the right time. You know, we talked about timing just a second ago. You know, there's some products that Dad worked on at Brown Foreman that that I think now, uh, if they would have come out today, probably would have been successful that weren't successful, you know, 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago. So I wanted to take a look at some of the stuff that Dad had really maybe been intrigued with that just never took off for one reason or another. And barrel finishes were something that he always enjoyed playing around with. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, there's a lot of – um variables that go into it that you really don't know how it's all going to shake out. You know, we, you start out finishing something and, you know, you're sampling kind of as you go along the way, you know, be it, be it two months, four months, six months, a year, two years or whatever. But really before it's all over with, you don't know whether you're going to have a winner or not. So you've got to be in tune enough to what potentially can work and, and adjust as many variables as you can to make sure you get the best outcome. But it's, it's, it's a tricky game. So barrel finishes are something that we, we zoned in on rather quickly that we wanted to take a look at doing. And then port, you know, there are several different, uh, you can finish, a, you can finish bourbon in any type of barrel if you want to. But some of the fortified wines were ones that seemed to have a little more interest because of the taste profile. So, mm-hmm. um, so port was one that, that we really felt like would be a good way to start. 
And there are other barrel finishes that we have in development now. And, and as we get the new distillery open, um, there's other other things, other mash bills, other other things that we'll be playing with. I'm very intrigued with historic recipes, with uh, looking back at, at older production methods and historic recipes that go back pre-prohibition. And we're going to be looking at a lot of that stuff as well, I think. So is there anything that you tried that failed? No. No? Well, I guess, you know, one shot and you're done is, is one way to go, right? So yeah, No, I mean, there's – I think the rye took a little bit of um, our rye whiskey, which is finished in Caribbean rum casks. I'm not saying there's not – there's not things that we – there wasn't anything that we didn't like. It was just a matter of fine-tuning, uh, a little bit – a little more fine-tuning than we did with the bourbon. But the, the sweet spot for the length of period finishing in the barrel – um, the, the particular rum that we're going to use to finish the rum barrels, you know, mm-hmm. I, I sampled. There's, a, there's so many of them. Yeah, I sampled 150 different rums before I found the one that I really wanted, the Plantation XO um, 20th anniversary rum. And that's a phenomenal rum. So there was a lot more there, a lot more variables in play there, I think, than there were in finishing the, 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 the our bourbon. Well, you got to take chance and failing forward is what I call it. When I screw up and things – not screw up, but you do, you take risk and it might not work out perfectly, but you learn and you can perfect it as you go. Definitely, I mean, there's stuff sitting in barrels now that could be destined to fail. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's experiments and other things in development that, and I, I think fail. I hate that word, but <laughs> I think there there are things that that may not may not turn out the way we anticipated that right. they might turn out. So. You know, there's believe me, there's I'm sure there's failure sitting over there somewhere, you know, <laughs> and uh, we'll figure it out at some point in time. And and it's how you look, you know, it, this is juggling for me. It's not, you know, it's not one ball you're tossing up in the air, you know, cost over and over again. You've got six or seven in the air and, you know, you're always moving them and and always, uh, always putting on a show and, and then deciding which one of those balls you're going to take out and make it your next release or whatever you're going to do. And the other ones you're still juggling. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. 
So I guess talk to us about the name. Like, how did the how did you guys think of the name? And it just wasn't becoming uh, Henderson's Family Bourbon. Yeah, that's really that's a really good story. We and we kind of have to throw conventional wisdom out the out the door, which is what we did. We did it with the package design. We did it with the name. We did it with just our overall philosophy. And, and you know, and when I first started thinking about packaging and names, just like you said, you know, I think not just with our bourbon, but all bourbons, they should be named, you know, old Colonel something, or, you know, you know, Henderson's reserve or, you know, and it's got to be in a square manly, you know, super manly bottle. It's got to be, you know, all these things that bourbon really used to be. Right. And uh, those things are changing. So, we really had to throw that out the window. So really the name Angel's Envy came about. We started kicking around the concept of the angel's share, which, you know, most people in Kentucky know what that is. But Go ahead and explain to the listeners yeah. what they don't know what an angel's share is. An angel's share is, you know, you put bourbon in a, in a barrel in a hot warehouse in Kentucky, and you're going to lose, you know, anywhere from 3 to 5%, sometimes more per year in evaporation. So we say that what evaporates out of those barrels and goes into the air, we're sharing with the angels. And so that's where the phrase angel share comes from. So the, the, the story behind angels envy is the angels get their share what they don't get their envious of. And that's just how it kind of played out. And then when we started talking about angels and angels share, we, we thought, of course, anytime you got angels, you've got wings. And the shape of the bottle started to take that shape as well, you know, because we have wings on the back of the bottle. And it, it just, it really went from there. The bottle is, is, as I'm sure most of your listeners have seen, it's a, it's almost becoming an iconic bottle. It stands out above a lot of others. It's a heavy perfume grade glass. Mm-hmm. The artwork is, is phenomenal on it. It's, it's very high quality. It's very heavy. And it's it's easily discernible in a, in a lineup when you look at the shelves of all the bourbons. It's because it, it, it sticks it's, out. It stands taller than the rest. It's also mm-hmm. very wide bodied. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I think you guys did a fantastic job in thinking of the marketing behind it. I, I, I agree. I think we really hit the mark, and it was not. It, it took a lot of um, a leap of faith to really go there. You know, we first started designing this package about five years ago. This was still at the very cusp of the what I call the craft distilling movement. So everything else out on the market now is still very uh, traditional. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing stuff a lot, lot more uh, non-traditional, and I think we can maybe broke the mold there. But it was really a big leap of faith to you know when you when you're so used to these very common packages and common names to to go with something that was was very different. And I can't take credit for all that. My team. My team was phenomenal, and and it took some convincing on my part to go off the reservation and do something different. I wasn't sold right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think who am I catering to? <laughs> but there's there's such a a, a new uh, drinker out there, right? I mean, women are getting into it. People that have never drank bourbon before are finding finding new ways to mix it in cocktails. So it's it's essentially becoming a, a way to reach a new drinker, and I think marketing can can expose that, and it can be able to find that as well. Absolutely. Much different demographic now than there was even five years ago. 
you know, and, and people, and it's, that makes it more difficult to a certain extent. You know, when you're choosing marketing plans, you know, it's a lot easier to to market to a narrow demographic than it is to a wider demographic. And 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 not only do we have a wider demographic now, it's not it's a wider demographic in a bunch of ways. It's not just an age difference; it's a combination age difference, and, and it's a sex difference now. More like you said, more women are drinking bourbon. Um, there's a, an economic component to it as well. You know what what an income is and how much people will spend. So not only so now you've got age, you've got economics, you've got sex, and a bunch of other things that, that that come into play when you're marketing your product. And it's sometimes it's harder to do that. So there's also some things that I've recently seen on the shelves, probably in the past year, and we're now starting to see a lot more of these. I guess you could say private barrels that are coming from companies. So can you talk to us a little bit more about maybe a barrel program that you all have and, and what's the process that goes through for that for anybody that's out there that would like to end up going through a liquor store or whatever routes they have to go through to be able to buy a barrel? Once again, we, we or had blend, to, whatever it would be. Sure. We had to be different. We didn't want to come to we, – we wanted to do something along the lines of a barrel program or a special selection program. We created what we call a special blend program. And this has is, is become an amazing hit around the country because what we'll do is we'll actually come in and sit down with an account and do a custom taste blend of Angel's Envy. Typical barrel programs now, the way they work is if, if someone wants to do a barrel, you call the distillery or whoever, whatever brand you want to do it with, and they'll send you, they'll go to the warehouse themselves. They'll pick out maybe six to eight barrel samples and send them to you and say, pick one. With our program, we actually allow the, the account, and we do it with them, we sit down using lab equipment and graduated cylinders and bl- do different blending ratios till we come up with a taste profile that, that the consumer really or that the account really appreciates. And then we, we barrel it or, or we bottle it rather with their name on the side of the bottle. And it's really been cool. It takes the account takes ownership of that product then they something they've made. And they really push it. They get a chance to be expressive. Now we don't allow people to go way off the reservation. You know, you'll see some if you have if you have a special blend next to a, a, a regular blend of Angel's Envy. If you have them next to each other, you can definitely sometimes tell discernible differences between the two. Yeah, I, I was in South Carolina in Charleston area, and uh, I went to a liquor store. I said, "Hey, you got anything cool?" And they're like, "We got some Angel's Envy, you know, the barrel." And I was like, "Oh, I got some Angel's Envy." And they're like, "No, no, we got." We picked out our own blend. You know, we took three or four, so I tried it right next to him, and you're right. It was different, and it was cool, and I ended up buying it just because I was like, hey, this is a special bottle. And it, the profile, I like the flavor, too. That's great. So, I mean, do you really think there's there's a huge a mass amount? I mean, probably not a huge mass amount, mm-hmm. but there are there are those subtle differences between choosing your own versus going with the, the regular Angel's Envy blend, then. Yeah, I think that the differences are more subtle than they are huge. They're, uh, and for someone that's not really, really, really familiar with Angel's Envy on a daily basis, if you drank one of the special blends, some of them you wouldn't know it's a difference. I mean, once again, unless you had them side by side. Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. So I guess the uh, there's another there's another special bottling that you do every year, and it's always very, very highly anticipated, and that's the, the cask strength release. So I guess kind of talk to us about what goes into that process of um, you know choosing the barrels that go into the blend, the, the marketing behind the boxes and the design and all that sort of stuff. Cask is a lot of fun. It's something that, that we probably – should have waited to do, you know, uh, as far as the infancy of the brand. But we were really excited about what happened when we dumped the first barrels of Angel's Envy and tasted the first uh, bottlings, at uh, the, the first dumps at, 
at proof at barrel proof. As a matter of fact, I took a picture of the first barrel we dumped, and I took a picture of the distillate because the color just amazed me. And at, at that very minute, I knew that that would be our first special release. It was just a matter of when we were going to do it. So um, this year's special release, this will be the, the 2014 will be the third one we've done. The bourbon in the in this release is a is about a four year old bourbon with an additional four almost five years finishing a port cask, so you're talking almost nine years total in wood, and you know we select special barrels for that. Uh, the selection criteria is really just based upon what I like and what Kyle likes and what we think is going to you know be suitable for the case. Not not every barrel is you know fits the profile, right. So there's definitely a, a limited amount of what you can put out for this. Definitely a limited amount every year. Uh, you know, everybody would like us to release more, but one thing I learned from my father is, you know, if it's not ready, we're not doing it. If it's not up to our standards for a particular release, we're not going to release it. We just won't do it. You know, well, we won't do as many bottles, or if there's more, we'll do more bottles. You know, there's no, it's not set in stone. And it's been received very well. We've heard stories of people following the delivery trucks to the liquor <laughs> store to, to pick them up. Uh, Kentucky, it sold out in a couple days. You might be able to find a bottle lingering here and there and other places. Uh, Paul Picault named it the number one spirit in the world last year, which was a phenomenal honor. So we're, we're very, very lucky to have that, and we're going to continue with that release, you know, probably every year. That's good awesome. to know. That's good to know. So any, any plans for the 2015 release of the, the cat strength? I mean, you got, you got the barrels maybe all chosen already, a different kind of flavor profile, anything that you can't talk about? <laughs> no, we haven't gotten that far yet. I wish I could say that we were that far out. Um, but it's time to start looking at some barrels. You know, that you can, you can actually finish bourbon for too long, I think, mm-hmm. in certain barrels. And, you know, that's one thing you don't want to do. You don't want to cross over that threshold. To where it's you know it's too much of a, of a, of, a, of the influence of the finishing barrel. I think this year's was really kind of the sweet spot that that four maybe almost five years finishing a port cask. To go too much beyond that, I mean it, it's not that it's not good. It's just that that port. Let's say we're talking about port finish. The port just takes such a dominant um, control over the, the the bourbon that it's so fruit forward. And I mean, like I said, I think it's really good. Mm-hmm. It just it, it's more like uh, the port characteristics just really scream out at you. So I don't know what the sweet spot is. We'll find it. We'll figure it out. But it, it, we'll probably start pulling some samples here over the next you know two or three months, and then, then maybe start setting some stuff aside. So I guess one of the things that you know we'll kind of talk about your your day job a little bit as well, right? So. You know, you have the title of Chief Innovation Officer, and, and when I think about the Angels Envy brand, it's definitely an, an innovative brand in the way that you deliver a product that really nobody else in the market's doing, or maybe other people are starting to do it. They're kind of catching up. They kind of see how it's taken off. So I guess kind of talk to us about uh, the innovations that you see. You know, talk about what that really means and, and how you brainstorm uh, these new products that you might one day come out with. I think it's it's an ongoing process. You know, you're always looking at. I'm always looking at new. I'm always looking at new products that are on the market. I'm always tasting new things, not just bourbon, but other spirits, and and I look for crossovers that may work. You know, flavor combinations that that might work, and and how would I achieve those in, in the bourbon arena? Uh, I do a lot of pairings with foods and. You know, I think it's being very in tune with your palate and very so very in tune with your palate, very in tune with um, where the industry's headed, where the consumer uh, wants the industry to go. You know, the consumer ultimately is going to dictate what works and what doesn't work by either buying or not buying the product or or keep buying it. You know, I mean, you can 
get a lot of people to buy something once, but it's going to be something they're going to continue to purchase. So you have to really be aware of what's going on in the marketplace. And I talk to a lot of consumers. I talk to a lot of our fans about what they like and what they might like to see next. So literally every day, there's probably some crazy ass thought that pops into my head <laughs> that um, got to find a whiteboard somewhere. Well, write it down. Ninety, yeah, no. Although unfortunately, the whiteboard's in my head, which isn't the best <laughs> place in the world because I can't even keep track well, of my well, with car six keys. Kids, with six kids, I can imagine you're gonna yeah, forget so a few things it's here. A very, and there. very cluttered space up there. Yeah, in I, my head. I, I, I forgot. Um, I have one child, and I forgot her birthday already. Sometimes. There you go. So it's, um, so it's 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 interesting and it's an ongoing thing and I really I really love it and it's a very uh, it's a great opportunity to be creative and continue forging forward and you know but I'm very big on you know, I think it's okay to innovate and it's okay to do things that are new but you still have to honor the history and preserve the history of bourbon as it is as it has been historically and so you have to walk that that line there and, and I feel I feel responsibility to do that. So talk a little bit about what's going to be going on here. Uh, so anybody that doesn't know, we're, we're actually just a, a few blocks down from where the distillery is going to be. It's at 500 East Main. Is that where it's going to be? Yeah, somewhere I mean, down there. Yeah. Somewhere down there. Yeah, mm-hmm. somewhere down there. So way. I guess kind of talk to us about the new distillery mm-hmm. and, and when you can expect those operations to be up and running. And uh, I guess for anybody that is ready to come down and, and visit you when they can do it. Yeah, the distillery, the new distillery building is uh, across from uh, Slugger Field, which is the AAA ballpark for the Cincinnati Reds on Main Street. And it's a, it's a, a city block. It stretches from Main to Market Street, a historic property that we're redeveloping, repurposing for the distillery. We hope to be open first part of the year in uh, 2015. Wait a minute, it's already 2015, 2016. <laughs> so maybe it's like you guys are behind schedule again. Schedule. <laughs> It'd be nice to have it open the end of 2015, but uh, you know who knows. Uh, but first part of 2016 will be great. Uh, full production distillery will be as of right now. We're the only full production distiller that'll be right downtown on Main Street. Now there are other distilleries that are doing things, other companies that are doing show places, but we'll be the only full production. Um, operation on Main Street, so you'd be able to see everything. We expect a couple hundred thousand people a year to come through it. And your prime location, <laughs> right there off the interstate, can't beat it. Uh, yeah, good, yeah. good sightline from the interstate. Yeah, we got really lucky there, but it was a property that that nobody wanted. It sat vacant for years, and as the city grew in that direction, it just nobody scooped it up. We managed to kind of have a little bit of vision there and see where it would fit into our plan. And we grabbed it when we had the opportunity. And it, it couldn't, I don't think there could be, not only do I, I, there couldn't be a better place for us as far as visibility goes, but there's not many other places downtown from a logistics standpoint that you could operate a distillery. You know, there's, there's trucks involved. There's, you know, there's coming in and out. There are a lot of things that, that are required to, and you couldn't put that downtown, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of, next lot of to the Yum Center or something shipping like grains that. Shipping grains and then moving barrels back out. Absolutely. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of logistics yeah. to figure out with that. Not many places you can do that. So we're about as close into the city that you can get and still be able to to do that type of operation. Yeah, I think it's it's really special and unique when you when you talk about being able to do that, too, because – you know, the bourbon trail, it's been good. It's been going on for, for a really long time. But to do the bourbon trail, I mean, it's like it's like 200 miles plus, right? It's, and you can't do it in a day. But you come to downtown of Whiskey Row, you'll be able to see you guys as well as uh, a few more down here all within, what, three, four city blocks, right? So it, it makes it for a, a very attractive tourist destination for especially those people that don't want to be sitting in a bus all day or crammed in a car, spending an hour here and an hour there, and then having to drive all the way back to Louisville. 
makes a lot of sense, and that's that's one of the reasons we decided to do it. We looked at some other properties. We looked at the old Taylor property, you know, out in the out in Woodford County, and we we considered things like that. And really, when we brought it back around, it came full circle that Louisville would be the best place to do it. And, and Louisville has such a historical significance in the distilling industry that that's not really spoken about very often. It's it's kind of the the history was in a sense kind of robbed from downtown Louisville and taken out to the to the the you know the rural rural counties in Kentucky. So bringing bourbon back in an urban setting is is full circle you know, really in a lot is. of ways. So. It's very it's very unique and awesome at the same time. All right. Well, good deal. So we're running up on the, the top of the, our time right here. But Wes, I wanted to thank you again for your time today. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you about your history, uh, getting some insights with with you and your father that started this this flagship brand that we all recognize on the on the shelf. So again, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So if you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter and at Instagram, or sorry, and on Instagram as well at Bourbon Pursuit. Yeah, I just want to thank Wes again. Had a great time. Uh, if you have any suggestions for interviews, uh, any show ideas, uh, comments, feedback, we'd love to hear it. So uh, hope you guys enjoy, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.